Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Intelligent Transport podcast with me, Luke Antonio, editor of Intelligent Transport. I want to start by saying thanks to everybody who listened to our first episode and shared it with friends and colleagues. The response so far has been really good and it's made me all the more excited to be talking with the guests that we have lined up for the rest of the year. If you're coming into this episode and you haven't heard the first one, you can catch up on our SoundCloud account or on iTunes anytime. Just search for Intelligent Transport Podcasts. In this episode, I caught up with Transport for London's Head of Technology and Data for Surface Transport, Simon Reid. I first met Simon at the beginning of 2019, and our conversations then really provided the basis for our conversation here, as you'll discover shortly. So, without further ado, let's get things going. So I'm here today at TFL with Simon Reid. Thank you very much, Simon, for, uh, for having me today. Um, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, and your route into the transport industry. Hi Luke, my name's Simon Reid. I'm Head of Technology and Data for Surface Transport within Transport for London, um, which broadly means I'm responsible for all the technology that we use to run surface transport, so everything above ground within London. I joined in 2006 originally to as the Programme Director to install iBus, which was the, um, the uh, vehicle location system and passenger information system that we've got operating on all of our buses. So a note on that uh, before we delve into a few of the other topics that I wanted to cover today. 10 years of iBus now um, must make you feel pretty proud. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great project to be on. I mean, contracted in 2005, first buses were operated in 2006. Um, and basically we did a complete retrofit across all, uh, at that time, 8,200 odd buses, um, which we started in 2007 and finished in 2009. And you're quite right, since April 2009, every bus in London has had automatic announcements of destination, uh, the route, uh, all the bus stops that were on the route and so on. And that's been sort of like the model that we've had ever since. Um, I think, so great, yes, we've had that in London. London's enjoyed that for 10 years. If you, bigger picture, probably quite disappointing that um, most of the other networks still would strive to get that onto their systems um, that are out there. If you look around, there's been some successes, there's some individual routes, but very few cities are enjoying that same facility ubiquitously on all vehicles. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's in a way quite a different technology to the kind of things we're seeing emerging in the marketplace now. Um, and for like you say, so many other networks to be that far behind is um, probably not as encouraging as you would like it to be. Yeah, I suppose at the time it was in, that we did the contract in 2005-06, that type of passenger information was an add-on to what was then a big investment into radio communications, vehicle location communications, um, and performance management of the network. The passenger information was an adjunct on it. And if anybody looks at the figures, I don't think authorities could have afforded to do the same thing that London was. It was one of those things where London was investing heavily because of the policies that we then had. Roll the clock forward, those technology components are now available to everybody at a much, much more competitive price. You can get onboard communication units very, very reasonably priced and can easily be written off over the cost of the vehicle. What's lacking is policy and data. It's very difficult to get a good data supply to make accurate passenger information work. CFL, I suppose, were one of the front runners in open data. Um, 
actually being able to make that work and implement it. Yeah. What do you think the hurdles are for other, other authorities? Oh, that's a good point. So we started our open data policy in 2011 um, and it was under the previous mayor who was very insistent that all of the delivery agencies that he had control of should publish their information and the concept of a London data store was born. Um, TfL were only just one of those agencies and we started publishing our data, all of it, um, uh, under that policy that the Mayor instigated. Um, obviously a lot of interest happens then on the transport side. We started off with the static information about schedules, um, uh, operating locations, where our peers were, where our stations were. That was the first level of data that we published. And then we started publishing the real-time information. So where are your vehicles? When can you expect the vehicle to arrive? And that was really when the world changed, when we were providing real-time information to an open market. But it also coexisted with the, the fact we made the policy not to write our own apps. So there is no TfL app out there providing customer information. That's changing, but right, you know, since 2011, that's been the case that it was an open market for others to innovate and develop. And that's what's happened. So I think we've seen something in the order of 800 odd apps out there that have been developed at various levels. Some for academic research, some for passenger information as a product that people are selling and are moving forward, and some for personal interest, where people have just been very interested in you know, what can you do if you knew that this is happening and that's happening and you mix data sources together, really for personal benefit to, to see how you could do that. So here we are now, a number of years later, um, and there's, you know, there's a complete new economy around using open data. Some of the biggest app users out there who are totally dependent on our data, CityMapper, BusTracker, people like that, um, they've got a good business out of the back of it and it's worked well for our customers having a lot of choice as to how they can get their travel information delivered to them. It's funny that in a way, real-time information was the cornerstone all those years ago. And now it is kind of becoming the cornerstone for what we might see in the next 10 years as well. Yeah. So if you uh, start to look at mobility as a service, for example, real-time information and data is right at the heart of that as well. Is it, do you see it as a kind of natural evolution? I, th I think the thing that's involved is, is customer expectation. Um, 2009, we did some work. We replaced our on-street bus information systems that we had. And at the time we let that contract, as I said, in 2009, the revolutionary point that we put in there was a good SMS service so that customers could get the same information via SMS. Now, why is that important? Well, in 2009, this thing called the iPad had just been launched the previous autumn by um, some company called Apple. No one could have predicted what happens next. No one, and nobody did. So we were rapidly in the situation, whereas SMS was extremely strong, but the technology was, you know, the whole app store market, the whole ability for people to consume things in different ways then came along. And once that started, the customer's expectation took off with it. So I think now it's gone completely away from the technology. No one cares what the technology is. Customers now expect information to be accurate, ubiquitous, and personalised to what they need. And that expectation just wasn't there a few years ago. You, know, you, you used to feel grateful if somebody told you when the next bus was coming. Now it's absolutely expected, and that's having a major impact on everything that we do. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that has been completely driven, as you, as you suggested, by the wider technology market. You yep. know, your iPhone, app stores, yep. uh, Google, Android, whatever it might be, it's completely driven by 
I suppose, a customer's desire to have the exact same um, experience available to them outside their home as in it, almost. Yep. You know, everything on demand, everything immediate and at their fingertips. Correct. I think a part of that is obviously now with transport, being able to look at your phone and just be able to say, okay, I need to get from here to here. Yep. And then work out a way of doing it that you wouldn't have been able to do before yeah. um, because you wouldn't have had the visibility of multiple modes available to you. I, I, think, I think that's right. The multiple mode thing is what makes a difference. And this is a challenge for the transport authority. So here I am with my hat on wearing transport for London's one. And we could clearly do intermodal and, and everything else with that. But where do we draw the line? Talking to Luke before you got here, you'd come in from Kent. Yeah, where do I draw the line about making that end-to-end -end responsibility when my brief is clearly to be part of a team that delivers transport in London? So I think it's probably someone else's job to do all that multimodal stuff, to link in the other rail services, to link in the fact that you might have taken a cab to get to the station, you might have taken a different bus to get to the station. The number of combinations that people want, this is that personal view of what that data is. Once that's set up, you know, that your personal journey today is to go from here via this network through into London, then you want to just have up-to-date information on the way. So if your planned service was being diverted, it wasn't going to London Bridge, it was going to somewhere else, you'd want to know that. What does that do to your next journey? You were planning to take the Jubilee line, does that now mean you've got to take a different one? It's that melding together of information. And I'm not necessarily sure that's a TfL responsibility. Of course it is within our own networks, but when it's, when it's for most people's journeys that's on multiple networks over a considerable distance, there might be other providers that are best placed for doing that. So just before we started recording, uh, we were talking about how we first came into contact. Mm. That was back in January, um, just as Offo Bike announced they were pulling out of London, and also as uh, Ford's Chariot On Demand service announced that it would cease operating in the US. Um, I saw your LinkedIn post um, about how it's crucial to get the business model right um, above the technology. And obviously, in the last four months, I imagine that your view on that hasn't changed. But could you kind of sum up your, your take on that and your approach on what we're seeing in this, uh, I suppose, in inverted commas, new mobility market? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's some great innovators out there taking some huge risks. That's probably the first thing that we should say. And we should take our hats off to that because it's through those innovative models that we will get new ways of operating and going through. Some of it will come from the public sector, but equally, those innovators out there are doing a you know, fantastic job of pushing the envelope. Where it gets a bit worrying is when it starts with, I've got a fantastic piece of technology that does X. And what's happening in my view is that there is a lot of venture capital, there's a lot of companies interested in putting the money up behind that, but there is not actually a viable business model at the end. There's not enough work being done to say who would actually take that service and make a, uh, a beneficial um, gain out of it. Um, clearly, there's a lot of focus on many of these models about getting something that works in a metropolitan area because people could work backwards and say, well, the number of people in a, in, a, in a metropolitan area, if I could get X percent of that, then that makes this service profitable. But I think it takes time. I think the the life of a startup getting some kind of visible return is, is a really short period of time. Can you get your service in and get a viable thing up and running in short order? It's a huge challenge and I don't envy them for doing so. Um, but what is clear is that some of these companies are just geared around the technology and are assuming 
that, that you know, build it and they will come to the nth degree. And I just don't think that that's going to work. Um, the particular examples that you've quoted, dockless bikes have been, uh, you know, everybody gets the idea of it. There's no infrastructure, it provides flexibility, but it does also provide you with tremendous problems with street furniture, or sorry, lack of. So bikes abandoned all over the city. Um, and the, the fact that it provides a personal service for the individual, they can just drop the bike off when they're finished is great. But if nobody in your area wants to take that bike, it's just gonna sit there until it's either lost or damaged or, or collected by people. So there is actually quite a consequential cost of moving that forward. That model probably can work, but it probably needs to be done in partnership with the city as opposed to being in opposition with the city, which is why sometimes it fails. Yeah, so that was one of the questions I noted down on the way over actually, is obviously the city, is the be all and end all mm. of, of urban transport. You know, everything, every operator is or should be working to benefit the city and the people living there. That doesn't always feel like it's the case with some of these new services. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are statistics coming out of the US, particularly that services like Uber and Lyft yep. are actually making congestion worse mm. um, because everybody's taking an individual car just because you're being driven somewhere yep. doesn't mean that you're actually aiding the cause in any way correct how important is it that authorities operators and people at city government level club together to try and tackle that yeah it's i think it's crucial in several different ways you've hit on the one head there about um congestion and how you manage that. One of the nightmare scenarios that is always penned for autonomous vehicles is the fact that you get some kind of element of congestion in an area, all the autonomous vehicles make their own decision about going to another way of getting around that, and you end up with rat runs, you end up with vehicles that you don't want in places where they shouldn't be. Um, how does the city control that? And the honest answer is we probably don't know yet. But what we're trying to do within TFL is we're, we're trying to get an agreement between anybody that's bringing in a new technology and ourselves, an agreement about data sharing, an agreement about policy, an agreement about learning between the two of us. Because you can't stop this technology going through and you probably don't want to, but you do want to take it on board in a way that the city can cope. So with TFL, we are the Transport Authority for London, so we should be getting involved with these discussions and we should be trying to help and enable that. So what colleagues of mine have done in the innovation department is they have a uh, code of conduct for doing dockless bike trials which we try and make sure that we work together with anybody that's opening those types of services and we're doing the same thing with the trials of autonomous vehicles so basically we've got a set of principles that we can discuss with people that are operating those trials we can agree what the data sharing is and together we can all learn how these services are going to work out over time yeah absolutely um uh, another part of that um, argument is to do with the public versus private debate and how those two sectors should work together or can work together. I mean, ultimately, I think everybody recognises that they have to to some degree. But based on what we've seen so far, what would you say about the seeming willingness from one to the other? What, to work together? To actually work together. Yeah, I think generally speaking, it's not a bad environment to be in. There are Most people would want to work with TFL because we do have a very good positive brand. So working outside of TFL would probably not be a good message. Um, yes, I think some of, the doc, you know, some of the technology providers that come in can think they can do it on their own and it would be too difficult. But in fairness, working with us is much easier than working against us. 
Um, I think Uber is an example of, you know, that was unfortunate being contested and various other bits and bobs. We've had other people now with services that have come through that we are processing in, you know, through normal business. Um, and, and I think probably the same will happen with the, the autonomous vehicles as they come through as well. Why wouldn't they want to work with us to get a solution that works? Because without a, a good successful base in London, probably none of these are going to be economically viable. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about the uh, kind of startup environment around all of these new companies, these new technology, these new services? Um, do you think there's a way or do you think there's a need to almost regulate how they're operating? Yeah, I probably wouldn't. I'm not a fan of regulation for regulation's sake. I'm really, really not into that. I know the government does an awful lot through um, the Innovate and the Catapult challenges. And, you know, so there is a lot of directed investment going into areas that government policy sees there is need. And that's true of the transport sector as it is of several others. So in that respect, policy money is being directed, taken forward. That fits quite well, I think. Um, what we always find a difficulty with is if you ignore the sort of wheeled variety of transport at the minute, if there's technology innovation that we think could be useful, sometimes it's quite difficult for an authority such as ourselves to take advantage of that simply because of our procurement rules and how we go through. We can't just go out and say, fantastic, let's use system XYZ because it looks a bit innovative. That's not the way it works. We have to make sure that we go through a procurement process. We have to make sure that we can tender and, and you know, go out to the market and so on. And that's a bit difficult for new startups to compete in that environment. So we're challenging ourselves as to say, how can we co-create? How can we bring innovators into our, um, into our world when they've got something new to bring forward? Yeah, that's fair enough. Are you able to say much about what your procurement process is like and some of the hurdles that are there? Well, I think we've, we've now changed it. If you look at things like there's the road lab that we've recently um, been running. So normally what you would do is you would say, right, we've defined a problem to solve. We've got a specification. We would go out to tender. We would invite people to respond to that tender. That's quite a lengthy process. What we've done with the road lab is a different approach. We've basically said, right, here's some challenges that we want, and we've got a certain amount of funding to do that. So we want challenges around managing roadworks, about managing congestion, and so on and so forth. And basically, we've set up, um, through that road lab process, a way of getting proof of concepts underway, on, you know, still with a bid process and a, and a, and a bit of a, uh, a challenge, but a much more lightweight one that should enable us to get proof of concepts into the ground with new startups with potentially no previous history of working with us at all. Um, and that's probably going to be our approach for doing that. Set out challenge statements, run it through some kind of uh, competition process and then get to as far POC through that. Yeah, sure. So the future is bright, most likely. Um, <laughs> but just backtracking slightly, hmm. uh, so obviously you're head of technology and data for surface transport here. Um, what do you, what do you think about the kind of need to evolve some of those current services? Um, uh, again, we mentioned before we started recording uh, about on-demand transport hmm. um, and that kind of that kind of service that would potentially not not always potentially replace an existing uh, fixed route service. What do you think about that kind of evolution? Yeah, I think in the same way, so, so we've been talking a lot about how technology has moved forward. We've got the same thing on the service provision. 
So most of the London, in this case, the bus service that we were chatting about, um, the, the bus service is, is really run on the same guidelines it has been for a number of years. So it is a fixed service with a schedule that underpins it. So it might be five buses an hour, ten buses an hour on a particular route, starts at this time, ends at that time, they're double decks, off you go. That position needs to change to flex um, for a couple of different reasons, but it all comes back to the customer. It has to provide a more flexible service for our customers because our customers are being more flexible. The person who now describes themselves as a regular commuter used to be somebody that got up and caught the 20 past day every Monday morning and they got back at 20 past five and they did that for five days a week. I have yet to find anybody whose working practices are now that simple. Most people now work, yes, they might work Monday to Wednesday, Thursday they work on client sites, Friday they work from home. That tends to be the way that people are working. And yet, if you're running a transport network with a fixed timetable service, that basically means that on some of those bits, you're going to have massive misuse of capacity. We've got to look at a different way of doing that. There's some areas, some routes, that are always going to need that high-level, high-frequency service, high-managed, and so on and so forth. But there are other areas where we have to look at different models. And at the bottom line of this, you know, it does come down to money. You know, can we carry on running services that are effectively um, potentially empty for parts of the week or parts of the day when actually what you need to do is to flex it around the demand that's there? So as, as our customers' mobility model changes, we need to find new ways of delivering bus services and other services that we do. And if that means moving to a more demand response model, or if that means moving to an express bus model, or if that means moving towards different capacities of vehicles at different times of the day, we're going to have to look to see how we can bring that into our network. I think it's encouraging to hear that message delivered um, because there's sometimes a tendency to think that transport authorities, obviously not, not for London because it's, the transport network here is actually mm. incredibly reliable mm. and really meets those passenger requirements uh, in a much better way than many others do. But there is a tendency maybe for other, other cities to think that um, the powers that be are slightly stubborn in their approach. But do you think that comes from, as you've said um, before, a lack of investment in the services that these companies want to actually provide for their customers? No, I, I think it's it, the, the, almost the, your previous sentence about, you know, it, we provide the service that the, the, the city needs. The, the last three words that were missing from that sentence is at a cost. Mm. And if the city is prepared, or the urban area or the rural area come to that, are prepared to add at a cost at the end of it, then that's fine. But if they're expecting it to run on a, um, a completely paid for basis, without any form of subsidy in it whatsoever, that's when all the challenges start. So TfL have enjoyed a direct operating subsidy for a number of years, but that has now been taken away at the last spending review. We, we no longer have that now from this financial year onwards. So basically, the bus network is subsidised by the other income that we have from the rest of TfL's input. So that means the tube revenues and the um, uh, third-party revenues that we get through property lettings and everything else. So we are running it, the, you know, the bus network costs more than we take in bus fares and we are paying the difference from it through other um, income that we have. And if you've got an urban environment that doesn't think that it wants to subsidise its service in any way, then they will get a much smaller service than what you have in London. It's, it's, it's just the economics of it, you won't be able to do otherwise. How can that 
work in a rural area? Yeah, I'm no expert in rural. I come from a nice <laughs> rural area, and I have no idea how you how you run it in an urban area. It is on a rural a rural transport model is one of the most difficult things to get consistency around. I mean, it's no um, surprise that some of the rural services have been absolutely decimated because as they've moved to a position of having no operational subsidy, and as people's mobility changes, it's almost impossible to put a scheduled service out and get a decent return back for it. It is. Um, it's painfully true that that's the case and it's been evidenced by the decline in rural services over a number of years. When you try turning it over and sort of saying, well, what would a rural service look like? It's again, really, really difficult to work out what would work with either a scattered community or a rural community that's away from a major network. Very, very difficult thing to try and work out. Um, yeah, and the government has tried incenting things like community bus services and things like that. Very, very difficult thing to make, make uh, operationally stable. Yeah. That's, that's understandable, I think. Um, and I, on a personal note, I think, so for me, I, I live in, in Tunbridge in Kent, and it takes me about 25 minutes, half an hour, with traffic to drive to the office mm. in a small village um, in, in rural Kent. If I want to take a bus, it's going to take me about two hours. Yeah. And... You know, I don't want to, as the editor of this title, I don't want to be a hypocrite and add to all that congestion every morning, but I'm left with very little option. Yeah. And so are many other people in that, in that situation who live in suburban or rural areas. Yeah. I think one of the concerns maybe is that even if you leave the rural argument to the side, suburban areas are growing at, you know, almost as quickly as urban areas are, and the services there need to improve tenfold. Yeah, really. I think I think we're we're seeing that as well. So, um, we think that sub suburban areas are the main growth area. In, in sorry, are the main potential growth areas because you have high car ownership out there because it's inconvenient and the services aren't that good. If you can turn that around and get a suburban bus network that is doing enough around things that can be quite beneficial on lots of areas from air pollution right the way through to health and vitality to everything else so going back to the conversation we had what's the best service model for dealing with suburban areas then i think there is demand there are people out there and if you can persuade them to take a, a public transport service of whatever that is it can only benefit the wider city environment thank you very much uh, that is just about okay good all, all i have time for um but yeah thank you very much for, for inviting me in and uh, sharing, great. sharing your insight. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Cheers. And there you have it. My thanks again to Simon for taking the time out to speak with me. I think what I've seen in recent months, and my conversation with Simon backs this up, is that the definition of words like smart and intelligent are becoming much broader in discourse about modern mobility. You know, as Simon alluded to, it's not just about the technology being utilised, it's about working in a logical, more joined up way that provides the most efficient possible services to the end users. There's not much merit in developing a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist, and there is a danger that that begins to happen. Now, looking ahead, we'll be back with another new episode towards the end of July, so don't forget to subscribe now so you don't miss out. Thanks a lot for listening. See you in July.